If you would turn with me to John chapter 1 to start today, John chapter 1. I've titled the sermon, which will be out of Matthew, the passage we read at the beginning of the service, I Will Make You Fishers of Men, a very familiar phrase for, for probably many of us. And before I really get into our passage in Matthew, I want to start in John chapter 1. I don't know about you, when you read both Mark's account of this same moment of Jesus calling His disciples in Mark chapter 1, when you read that, or if you read the one we read at the beginning of the service in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 to 25, it seems to happen so suddenly. Jesus walks up, and there's no indication of a prior relationship. He walks up to these siblings, uh, brothers Peter and uh, Andrew and James and John, and He speaks to them and says, you've got to fo- come follow Me. They drop everything they have, and they go immediately to follow Jesus. And while certainly both Matthew and Mark are emphasizing the suddenness and the, dr- the drama of this call, which is no doubt true and real, John and Luke give us a little more background information that Jesus actually had spent some time with these individuals uh, in a period before He called them formally to follow Him. So let's, let's look at the first in- instance. If you were here, uh, I think it was last Sunday, we talked about uh, John, the end of chapters 1, and then chapters 2, 3, and 4 all cover a span that Matthew and Mark and Luke don't talk about at all in their gospel. He, he fills in some details about Jesus' early ministry, and in that time period, about a year before Jesus actually calls Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow Him formally, you get this glimpse. So look with me here at John one thirty-five. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, by the way, I just want to tell you, the Gospel of John is written by the Apostle John, and the man named John in the story is not that John, but another John called John the Baptist. So there's a lot of Johns to hold on to with your mind, but this is now referring to John the Baptist, John 1.35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So two disciples left John and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, these two disciples, following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. As your note may say, it's about four in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, uh, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So you get here a glimpse. This is about a year before Jesus actually officially calls Peter and some of these others. And he says, okay, I'm going to name you, uh, I'm going to name you Peter. Peter, not Cephas, and as you know, the word Peter sounds like the word for rock. And so, although Peter was far from a rock when Jesus met him, he wasn't exactly as sturdy and reliable as a rock when Jesus first met him. By the time Jesus has begun to transform him, Peter truly does become a rock in the early church. Okay, now let's fast forward. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and this is actually fast forwarding about a year into time. 
Jesus has traveled around, as you've heard. He's talked to Nicodemus. He's talked to the woman at the well. He's spent some time with John the Baptist. Now he's gone uh, back up north. Look at Luke chapter 5. Into, he's back in Galilee now. And just so, you can, just so you can hold all this together, the passage we're getting to in Matthew 4 when Jesus calls the disciples, that is the exact same scene as this scene in Luke 5, but Luke gives us a huge part of the story that Matthew leaves out. And if you're wondering why, why does one gospel author include some significant detail and another author seems to leave it out or only states it very quickly, it's because the gospels have inspired, um, the, the, the gospel writers are inspired by God and they have particular agendas in what they are saying. An agenda, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Everyone who's ever written an article in your life knows that you have to be highly selective in what you include and what you don't include. Even if you're writing a, an article just about a local uh, sports team or at a high school, if you're going to describe the game, you're going to leave out 99.9% of what happened that night, and you're going to include the 0.1% in your column that fits and highlights the details that you want to make clear and to, and to highlight. And someone's agenda could be bad. Someone's agenda could also be wonderful and good. The gospel writers, each of them have particular things they are trying to emphasize, and for Luke's purposes, he draws out part of the story that the other authors do not include, but I think it's helpful to see it alongside the calling of the disciples. So, with all that in place, Peter and the others have already met Jesus over a year ago. They even spent some time following Him around for a short time. Then they went back to Galilee and they continued their fishing. And here's when Jesus returns to Galilee months later to meet with them again and to formally call them as disciples. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowds, while a crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, just pause here. Luke, who probably did not grow up in the area, always calls the Sea of Galilee a lake, or generally calls it a lake, because to him, it's 13 miles by about nine miles. It's a lake. It's a relatively large lake, whereas the people who grew up in the area, they tend to refer to it as a sea, the Sea of Galilee, but don't be confused by that. It's the same place, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. Verse 2, and he saw two boats, Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So just pause here. Jesus has already done some of ministry in the area, so crowds are already magnetically being drawn to Jesus. And it's, it's easy to understand the appeal to Jesus. His healings and His teaching were so powerful that people would call relatives and friends and they would come from all over to see Jesus. And Jesus is standing on the edge of the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, and He's right on the edge of the shore. And this crowd is no doubt in the hundreds, you know, at times it was in the well over the, in, into the thousands, uh, even, even uh, the feeding of the 5,000, you get a glimpse of the size. And this crowd is pushing in from all sides. And if you know anything about a crowd, uh, if a crowd loses control or if someone panics or if people are trying from the very back rows to get a little closer, everyone's pushing in and suddenly you could have people collapse, you could have people push in, and suddenly Jesus might be standing in the lake in a moment if He doesn't do something. So Jesus gets on a boat and He gets a little distance from the crowd to kind of keep the people at bay a little bit, and it also spreads out. So, it's, you know, voices tend to travel really well over, over calm water, and so Jesus gets back a little bit from the shore. The crowd is out there right around the, the edge of the water, and Jesus sits down on Peter's boat, and He teaches them. Now, we don't get a lot of information about what He said, but stick, stick around for more on the Sermon on the Mount to come because 
The Sermon on the Mount, which Scott began a few weeks ago, we'll get back to that shortly. The Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful synopsis of the teaching that Jesus was doing during this time period. So, you'll get a sampling for what He may have said on that day. So, here's Jesus on the boat, verse 4. And when He had finished speaking, He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, stop here. I know that we've talked about this passage at times in the past, but I love this passage. Let me read a commentary I'd never seen till this morning on this passage, and it made me smile as he described the attitude of some professional fishermen in this circumstance. Okay, so listen to this. This is not meant to be a knock on fishermen in the room, okay, but just this is what he says. Few fishermen endure failure in the art admirably. And people who fish for a living rather than for sport endure it even less admirably, failure. We need not ask what goes through the mind of a professional fisherman in a foul mood when a non-fisherman orders him to do again in bad conditions what he has already tried and failed to do all night in good conditions. You understand that? And so it says, Peter says, Master, we've worked hard all night. We've toiled all night. Listen, Jesus, I understand. You're the rabbi and you know the Torah, and you know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. You're also trained in carpentry. That's wonderful. But this is not your realm, Jesus. We are professional fishermen. Our fathers are professional fishermen. Ever since we were three years old, we've been out on the Sea of Galilee with our dad. We know all there is to know about the Sea of Galilee. We know all to know, there is to know about fishing. Jesus, listen, we have here Okay, I'm, I'm ad-libbing. Okay, you understand. Reading between the lines. Peter's thinking in his mind, Jesus, okay, look, let me show you. We got this net here. So that's about 25 feet wide. It's a gigantic circle. It has leaded weights around the outside of this thing. We take it out on the boat. It takes a lot of skill to be able to do this well, but I've been training for a long time. You gather it up and you throw it out. And if you spin it just right, like a parachute, it opens up and it, 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 the perfect circle hits the lake 25 feet wide and it begins to sink. And if you do it during the day, the fish can see the net coming from a mile away and they swim away. So this is why we do our fishing at night. And so we throw this thing out 25 feet wide. It lands. We did it all night over and over. It drags down deep into the water. And then we got all these ropes attached to it. We start pulling it in. And Lord Jesus, every single time we cast it out last night for the eight to 10 hours we were out there, all through the watches of the night, in the darkness, trying to be quiet, not to scare the fish. Every single time we did it, we caught nothing, not a single time. And now, Jesus, we have a crowd of hundreds of people standing right on the shore, scaring all the fish away, no doubt. It's broad daylight. The sun is shining. If we throw a net out into the lake right now, all the fish will see it. We will catch absolutely nothing, but you are the master. I will do as you say. You can imagine Peter's internal dialogue and frustration after being up all night. The commentator continues, two voices are audible in Peter's reply. First, the professional fisherman, and second, the fledgling disciple, the man of this world and the man of faith. Peter knows from experience the futility of fishing after sunup, and it says here, um, he, he reminds Jesus, uh, who is considerably less experienced in such matters of this fact. And his final word, however, is not based on his experience, reasonable as it may be, but on the authority of Jesus. Peter trusts the word of Jesus in spite of all experience to the contrary, and that for him and for all believers of all time is an example of faith. So Peter says, okay, Lord, we will, we will do as you ask. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number. 
of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the, both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, if this passage is new to you, that's a strange response. I've, I remember R.C. Sproul saying, if I was Peter on that day, I would say, Jesus, we have a great business offer for you. All you got to do is just one or two times a month, you make your way up here and tell me exactly where to place those nets, and we'll split the profit 50-50. It's going to be great. It's gonna, we, we, we're, we're so excited at your ability. You're, you are the ultimate fisherman, and we, we're ready to go. But Peter does not respond with excitement. Now, think about this. He spent all night trying to accomplish something, and he accomplished nothing of what he was trying to accomplish, not one fish. Now, in a single moment, he's caught many, many scores of fish, and it's so much that the nets are starting to tear as they pull them up from the deep water, and the boats are starting to go down closer to level with the water itself because they're so heavy, and they're scared that they're going to sink the boats. And here, why in the world doesn't Peter respond with enthusiasm and joy and excitement? Because he is having his Isaiah 6 moment right here. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah sees the Lord high lifted up. He gets a glimpse of God's unrivaled holiness. Seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah doesn't say, wow, what a privilege this is. I'm getting to see God with my own eyes. This is something that no man gets to experience in this life. I am seeing God. This is amazing. This is awesome. Isaiah does not celebrate. When Isaiah sees the holiness of God for the first time clearly, Isaiah sees Isaiah for the first time clearly. When you have a really bright light bulb and you have a stained and dirty shirt, when you bring the shirt closer and closer to the light bulb, the stain doesn't get worse, but the stain that was already bad becomes more visible. Isaiah and Peter did not become more sinful because they were around the holiness of God. It was the holiness of God like an unbelievably brilliant light that lit up the stains of his character. And so Isaiah falls on his face and says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And you know there an angel brings the coal with tongs from an altar, touches his lips, and his guilt is removed. Well, here, Peter just saw a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus. And you say, What does a catch of fish have to do with the holiness of Jesus? In this moment, Peter knows. Statistically, catching fish right now is not possible. It's not going to happen. These are the worst conditions. We're not going to catch anything. And now it looks like half the fish in the sea have jumped into our nets. And so he looks up and he knows in this moment, the man standing before me in this boat is the God who is sovereign over creation. He can tell the fish in the Sea of Galilee where to go and where to be, and they will be there when he asks, just like he can tell a storm to stop, as he will do later, and for waves to be stilled on this same sea, and who can one day walk on these very waters. This is not a man. This is a man who is truly God, and it is sinking in for the very first time to Peter truly who Jesus is. He doesn't celebrate and say thank you. He says, verse 6 again, but when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. 
And Jesus said to Simon, now here it connects back to Matthew 4, do not be afraid. Let's stop there. Remember Revelation chapter 1? John, the apostle. Remember what he calls himself in his gospel? He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember that? The beloved disciple. He had a particularly intimate friendship with the Lord Jesus. He sat next to the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. And in Revelation 1, when John sees the resurrected, glorified Christ in his vision, remember, his legs like bronze, his, his hair white as wool like the vision in Daniel 7, he has a sword coming from his mouth, this, this incredible, overwhelming vision. John does not say, you know, Lord, it's been 60 years since your ascension. It's great to see you again. He doesn't say that. He, sa- he falls on his face like a dead man in Revelation 1. The beloved disciple sees the glorified Jesus, falls on his face like a dead man on the island of Patmos. And what does Jesus do? He leans down, puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. I have conquered death. I've got the keys to death and the grave. So again here, Jesus reaches down and says to Peter, do not be afraid. Verse 10, from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. As we're turning there, I just want to ask you personally, not thinking about other people, but thinking about yourself. Have you had a moment or moments, I hope more than one, have you had recurring moments in your life where you have had a sense of the weight of your personal guilt and sin before God, a weight of what your sin deserves if you got what you deserved, a sense of true terror, a sense of real undeservedness, and a sense at the same time, the Lord Jesus has paid for my sin, He has washed them away, and I can stand righteous before Him because of His death and resurrection on my behalf. Is that a part of your Christian experience? I hope it is. The three points of the message are, number one, Jesus calls the disciples to become fishers of men. Number two, the disciples left everything and followed Him. And a conclusion is simply, follow me, using Jesus' words. So point number one. Jesus calls the disciples to become fishers of men. Let's read Matthew's account here of the same story. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately... They left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus calls the disciples to become fishers of men, a very apt metaphor to use with seasoned fishermen. You may not have known, I did not know, that this metaphor comes out of the Old Testament. That was new to me, honestly. Uh, It comes from Jeremiah chapter 16. Just listen to Jeremiah 16, 14 to 16 as I'll read it for you. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But 
as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he has driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Right? So Israel's been exiled and they're going to be brought back home from exile, which happens during the time of Nehemiah and on. But then this verse is added by Jeremiah. Behold, I am, this is the Lord speaking, behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. So this idea of salvation coming to God's people is described with the metaphor of fishers going out to catch them and hunters going out to find these people of God. And Jesus picks up on this Old Testament metaphor and says, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. Now, the metaphor is very obvious in one sense, but let's stop and think about it for a second here. The very basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to to use the language of this passage, to be a follower of Jesus, the, the very basic sense of what this is about is at the core of a Christian is the desire and the willingness to seek to influence other people to also follow Jesus. Now, I know that's obvious. I know that's obvious, but that is That is maybe not as lived out as you might expect. How many people claim to be followers of Christ, and yet week by week, and even month by month, there is virtually no fruit of any kind in their life that would indicate that they are deeply passionate about bringing other people, that is, non-Christians and Christians, into a deeper commitment to follow the Lord Jesus? Does the way I spend my money indicate that I care about disciple-making? Does the way I spend my time when I have any free time does it, or scheduled time, does it indicate that I care about making followers of Christ by God's grace? What I'm reading, does it show that I have an interest in making followers of Christ? The conversations I have when I have a chance, whether it's at work, whether it's with your children at home, whether it's with your wife or husband or roommates, whether it's with uh, a lost relative or, or someone you know who's not a believer, do our conversations show a real passion to be fishers of men, to be those who are seeking to bring people closer to the Lord Jesus? This is not a Sunday school answer. This is Christianity 101. Those who have been born again from death to life have within them a desire for other people to come from death to life. If there is literally no desire and and no effort being given in your life to make others know Christ and make Christians become more passionate followers of Christ, I'm going to ask, what do you even mean by saying that you yourself are a follower of Jesus? What do those words even mean if you're not trying to bring others into that blessing that the Lord has given you? It's like saying, hey, I'm a beggar. I I was in the deserts of sin. I was starving. I was thirsty. I was on the verge of death. And I was with a whole bunch of people who were in the same predicament. And I went over this sand dune over here. I walked over that sand dune after days of thirst and exhaustion, and I found an oasis. I found drinkable, cool springs of water. I found a place where we can survive and thrive here. And then you go back over the hill, and you don't tell and invite the people with you to what you've just found. What kind, how could that be? How could we have tasted and seen that God is good, and how could I fail, which I do, but how could I reach a point where I don't desperately want other people to experience what the Lord has given me the grace to experience in Him? He is salvation. He is life. I mean, if if your soul is thirsty or dry, the answer is Jesus. It's not a Sunday school answer. It is a true answer. Jesus actually can satisfy the soul and forgive sin. And if we know that and have tasted it and experienced it, 
To not live in a way to try to get that to other people is to not really understand the basics of what the Christian life is all about. And I would say it's a failure to be a Christian in the first place if that is not a desire of my heart. Let's look at this phrase here, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We cannot make ourselves Christians. We cannot make ourselves become born again. We cannot make ourselves have the deepest loves and affections of our heart change at the drop of a hat. The Lord is the one who makes fishers of men. The Lord is the one we need, and so we must be desperate before God. I I hope when you go to pray before the Lord, desperation is the number one thing we take to the Lord. Lord, without you, I am lost. Without you, I am ruined. Without you, I am weak and helpless. Please give me refreshment. Give me strength. Renew me like on the wings of eagles. Help my, help my strength to be replenished and restored. If we want to become fishers of men, the Lord must make us into that, and we must seek the Lord and plead with the Lord for that transformation to take place within us. Also, let me just mention, this could, this can easily, we can all miss this. Maybe you've already caught this point, but it's easy for me to, you can skip right past this. Without turning, just thinking in your mind back to Luke 5, the story of Peter casting the net out and all the fish coming in. You understand that's a massive metaphor, right? All night, we toiled in our own strength. What do we catch? Nothing. When Jesus says a word, we catch as many fish as we can handle. And then Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And the same rules will apply. If you try to do evangelism in your own strength, and you try to do this in your own might, you will toil all night, and you will catch nothing right? If, if I'm trying to do the Lord's work in my power and strength, I can work my fingers to the bone and nothing is going to happen left to myself. But Jesus says, listen, I as the sovereign one, I can put the fish into the net of the gospel that you spread. When you speak the truth, I will use it. My word will not return to me void. It will accomplish the job and the task that I have assigned to it. So it is not our strength It's not in what we can do. It's in the Lord's strength. And as we speak as weak instruments, as we speak the word of God, God empowers it. And he himself draws the fish into the net. He's the one that brings about the conversion and the regeneration that we so desperately desire from those we speak to. And this obviously fits. Just turn with me. You you know this, but the the Great Commission, the last section of Matthew, we've got to see this to connect to our current passage. I actually find the familiar passages of the Bible the hardest ones sometimes to teach on because we, we, we so often have heard them so many times it's hard to hear them freshly in our minds. But listen to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 to the end of the book. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, do you hear? That is sovereignty, right? I've got, it's like, just like he had sovereignty over the fish in the Sea of Galilee, All authority in heaven and on earth over angels and demons, principalities, Jesus is supreme over them. He is sovereignly in control over them. They are on his leash. And on earth, all the kings and all the people in authority, they are on Christ's leash. And all the hearts of all mankind are ultimately under Christ's sovereign dominion. That's what gives us hope for the Great Commission. Verse 19, go therefore, because I'm sovereign over heaven and earth, go and make disciples of all all nations, baptizing them. That stands for conversion and baptism that comes right after. Baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian formula, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see that it's sandwiched? Do you see it? All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I'm going to be with you as you go. That's, that's on either side of this. In the middle is go do the impossible. Go catch the fish that it's impossible to catch without me. Go out there and cast the net of the gospel to all nations, and you will see conversions in all nations. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come, Jesus says in Matthew 24. The gospel is going to succeed. There might be ups and downs and fits and starts, but the gospel is going to succeed. It is going to break through all the nations, and people from every tribe and tongue will be converted to Christ. And not only are they converted and baptized, that's not when the Great Commission ends, right? That's kind of when it gets going. Then we've got to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's lifelong Christian discipleship. And so this fishing for people involves first conversion through the gospel, but then it involves a life of discipleship. And listen, that's only ever going to happen in a community, in, in a Christian community, in a church. That's why Jesus starts, he doesn't call one disciple, say, hey, me and you are going to hang out. He calls 12 because he's showing you a little preview of what the church is going to be. And he begins to speak to them about the church, which is coming in a few years' time. So we can turn back to Matthew chapter 4. As you're turning there, don't turn here. I'll just read another passage. But Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus is our only hope to, for success in the fishing for men. Now, Peter learned this lesson, didn't he? On Pentecost, Peter stands up. Listen to the passage. Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. He is casting a net in front of a group that is hostile. Right? The group that had Jesus crucified 50 days ago, Peter says, you guys killed the Messiah. Wow, what a place to throw your gospel net right into the crowd of people who called for Jesus' death a month and a half ago. That's what Peter just did. What happens? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, if Peter was left doing the fishing by himself, they would not have been cut to the heart. Peter would have been cut to the heart in a different kind of way, okay? Peter would have been killed, okay? Just like Stephen is stoned later. But the Spirit illuminates and empowers his message. So what happens? They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Listen, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Just like Jesus put those fish in the net, the Lord has to call hearts to himself for the evangelism to be successful. Okay, point number two. Point number two, the disciples left everything and followed him. Let's look at the two key verses here, verses 20 and 22. So verse 20 is referring to Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, Matthew 4.20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, and going from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So they left their nets, they left the boat. They even left their father, and they followed Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean 
obviously, that they stopped caring for or honoring their father. That's not what we're talking about at all. But here's what, here's what, here's what we're seeing. When push comes to shove, if it is God's will or anyone else's will, we must give way to what God has asked of us, even if it costs us. Do you think it costs them economically to do what they did? We're going to spend the next couple years basically abandoning our job and walking around with a homeless Galilean man who's a rabbi of some kind. We're going to follow him around for the next couple years. He has no place to lay his head. He's homeless. We're going to be basically homeless with him, and we're not going to be making money from catching fish. This was a massive economic sacrifice that these men made, and they made it at the drop of a hat. They, they let go of all that they had, the net, the boat, the, their father, and they followed Jesus all around for the next few years. Now listen, Jesus, you know, the rich young ruler, he asked him to give up all of his money, to give it all away to the poor. That was to that person specifically. We are not being asked to literally give away everything that we have to be a Christian, literally. But Jesus does say in Luke, 40, Luke 14, 33, listen to this, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone, the word renounce means to say goodbye to. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus doesn't mean to own things is sinful. In the book of Acts, John Mark's mother owned a large house in Jerusalem where the saints gathered, and on and on. There are many examples of godly people, even wealthy godly people in the Bible. The point is this, though. This is what Jesus, I think, is saying. If anything, if the Lord demands you to give up anything, you've got to be willing to give it up. Is that the way it is? Am I willing to make changes that would say Jesus is my priority, not money? I cannot serve God and money. Either I will love the one and despise the other, or I'll be devoted to the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. For some people, and again, these are very difficult situations, but I mean, I won't go into the details here, but some of you know people who uh, their parents just absolutely don't understand Christianity or the gospel at all. They're not Christian. And when their son or daughter says, I want to go overseas on the mission field, the parents just say, this is a horrible decision. This makes no sense whatsoever. And you, we absolutely do not want you to do this. And now listen, if you're an adult child and your parents are not Christians and they say that to you, listen, we have to do everything we can to honor them and to be kind and to not shoot back with anger and to never say anything inappropriate in those situations. We have to speak with humility and we have to speak with grace, but we also have to speak with truth. And what we say may still be upsetting to our parents, but at the end of the day, Jesus says, you've got to prioritize me over all other relationships and over all other things in your life. And you've at least got to be willing to let go of anything that stands between you and him. All right, the, the concluding point. This is uh, number three. Just simply the words, follow me. And I want to I read these last verses of the chapter. The healing ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Matthew 4, 30, uh, 23. And he went out... He went throughout all Galilee doing three things, teaching in their synagogues, and number two, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and number three, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria to the north, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, I just have to point out, the word followed him. You see that? the word in verse 25, the great crowds followed him? 
It's the same Greek word used earlier to describe in verse 20 that they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Same Greek words, okay? Now, when Peter and James and Andrew and John, when they followed Jesus, was it real? It was real, right? It lasted till the end of their lives. Many of them were martyred for Christ. This crowd, was it all real following for, for all of this crowd? There's no way. And we know that because why? Well, this is pre-medicine. This is pre-germ theory of disease. This is back when you get sick with minor things and you're going to deal with them until the end of your life. Now there's a man who's able to heal any and every illness. They're bringing people from far around all these different cities, spanning hundreds of miles in every direction. They're bringing him to Jesus for healing. And the crowds are following him. But this is, a lot of this is fair weather following Jesus can give me beneficial circumstances. He can heal my illnesses. I want all to do with this guy. But as soon as he starts preaching demanding messages, you know what will happen in all the gospels? The crowd slims down to almost no one. There's a kind of following Jesus that is not really following Jesus. It's following him for what he can give you in the moment circumstantially. It's not following him for who he is no matter what comes our way. But let's still speak here in closing to this statement, follow me. Follow me. Who exactly is the me that we are following? We just sang it in the song a moment ago, really. Powerful and compassionate. He healed every disease. I mean, you, you understand, this is real compassion. I think the most common word to describe Jesus' emotional life in all the Gospels is He felt compassion for them over and over. He looks upon the sick the weak. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, wandering on the hills of Judea. Jesus is always moving out in compassion for others. That is, that is the Jesus of the Gospels. But listen, the Jesus reigning in heaven, the glorified, exalted Christ, isn't a different Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means the Jesus sitting on His throne. Now listen, yes, He does have righteous wrath, and yes, one day He will pour that out on those who rebel against Him. That is, that's true. No question about it. Read Revelation 19 coming on the horse with a sword in his mouth. But Jesus still has infinite mercy and compassion and grace and love and tenderness for all who will go to him in humility and call out to him for his grace. He heals every disease. You know, First Peter says, he himself bore in our bodies, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed The healing is ultimately the spiritual healing of our sins being forgiven. Let me read a quote from J.C. Ryle. If you don't know who that is, you should read anything by J.C. Ryle. He's a wonderful man of God from over 100 years ago. This is his commentary on these verses. I thought this was a good way to to wrap up this message. J.C. Ryle writes this about Jesus' compassion. These miracles that he's performing here, healing every disease and every affliction, These miracles are meant to be types and emblems of our Lord's skill as a spiritual physician. He before whom no bodily disease proved incurable is mighty to cure every ailment of our souls. There is no broken heart that he cannot heal. There is no wound of conscience that he cannot cure. Fallen, crushed, bruised, plague-stricken as we all are by sin… Jesus, by His blood and Spirit, can make us whole. Only let us apply to Him. Let us go to Him. These miracles, not least, are intended to show us Christ's heart. He is a most compassionate Savior. 
He rejected no one that came to him. He refused no one, however loathsome and diseased they were. He had an ear to hear all and a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. There is no kindness like his. His compassions, they fail not. Then he quotes, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. High in heaven at God's right hand, Jesus is not in the least altered or changed or different. He is just as able to save, just as willing to receive, just as ready to help as he was those many years ago. Should we have spread out our wants before Him? Should we have spread out our wants before Him then? Let us do the same now. He can heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So the task before us is enormous, to be fishers of men, to be influencing others, to draw them to Christ, and to see them grow in Christ's likeness just as we desire to do. But that task can only be done because of the power and the kindness and the compassion of Jesus who is sovereign over heaven and earth. And we must go to Him with all of our problems and sins and ailments, all of our spiritual maladies. We, we, we go to Him as the great physician, and He is the one who can heal all of our diseases. He can restore what is wrong with us. He can heal the disease and fix what is broken and forgive what is sinful. So let us go to Him. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we are we are thankful that you are the, the good physician, that you came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It is not those who think they are righteous who are going to think that they need a Savior. It is those who know that they are not righteous, that they are lost on their own, who desperately need a Savior. And Lord Jesus, you were not, you were not afraid to draw near to the the sickest, the unclean, the defiled, and to touch them with your hand and to bring wholeness and healing. And Lord, as we bring our sin, which is far more defiled than any human body that has been ravaged by disease, as we bring our sins to you, Lord Jesus, you love to reach out and to remove them. You love to take away those burdens and to cleanse us from sin and from all unrighteousness. So God, in our weakness, in our helplessness, in our sinfulness, help us to come to you for the cure that only you can provide. And Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have made this provision for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Reading from Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank You that The Lord Jesus that you have sent for us is the good shepherd, that he laid down his life for the sheep, 
and that your sheep know your voice and that they follow you and that no one can snatch them out of the Lord Jesus' hand out of your, or out of your hand, Heavenly Father, because you are greater than all. And God, I pray that we would be comforted by this fact, that we shall not lack anything we need in this life to finish faithfully and that in the life to come we shall have eternal blessedness in your presence in the new heavens and new earth. I pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.